0: It's time for Backstage Chats with Women in Music, where the stories and voices of female music makers inspire women like you
1: to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash your inner rock star. Podcasting from Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world, here's your host, Thea Wood. Welcome to Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. This episode's special guest spent over four decades working with notable acts like the Bare Naked Ladies, Sheila E, David Byrne, and most notably his royal badness, Prince. Now she's a PhD teaching audio engineering and production at Berkeley College of Music, where she's also leading research on psychoacoustics and music cognition. She had so much to share that we dedicated not one but two episodes to this special guest. You're listening to part two of our chat with the iconic Susan Rogers. We're jumping in with a quick understanding of the roles an audio engineer may play in recording an album. Let's start the chat. Can we also let our audience know, because a lot of us are just music fans, can you please explain the difference between being an audio engineer and a producer? Because I know that Prince preferred to be his own producer. And so if you could explain that difference to people.
0: Yes, those are different roles, like on a film. Uh, So with an analogy with film would be, um, I started out, let's say, as the person who sets up and repairs the camera. I was an audio technician, so I did not use the equipment. I maintained and repaired the equipment so that it could be used by others. But I was able to, through some wonderful quirks of fate, I was able to transition from being the person who set up the camera to being like the cinematographer on a film. The cinematographer on a film is analogous to the recording engineer. Uh, The recording engineer is really like the cinematographer, and, and in some to some degree, the art director, responsible for how a movie looks. The engineer is responsible for how a movie sounds, choosing the microphones and uh, framing the shot, so to speak, so that our attention goes to the objects in the scene that we need to pay attention to. In some cases, it'll be lyrics, or it might be just the rhythm, or it might be the chord changes or melodies. So the engineer is responsible for signal and for shaping The spectrum, the frequency spectrum and the amplitude and all that to get it to sound a certain way. But the producer is analogous to a director on a film who uh, takes the script as the starting point, takes the actors and then pulls performances from them and then oversees the editing of this piece so that it works as a global whole that you have the right people performing the right scenes and that the text, the the script is good. So uh, a producer on a record is someone who uh, assesses the lyrical content and decides what message we're putting out there and oversees the work of everyone else, including the musical performances, to make sure that we convey the message we said we would convey so the producer is the person who's ultimately responsible at the end of the day for how this record turns out it is rare to go from being audio technician to being engineer to being a record producer and then there's mixer in there as well which is a separate job Uh, I'm very fortunate I got to do all those things
1: and there's also a difference in compensation with regard to for instance an audio engineer versus a, a producer and do you mind explaining that to our listeners
0: well audio technicians are usually employed by recording studios or they might be recorded uh, be employed by a record label or something like that engineers typically get like a, a flat fee to do a record and at least in my day in the 80s and 90s that's how it was and I think it's still the same today um, producers were probably still our royalty participants that's what allowed me to have great financial success with bare naked ladies because i was a producer for bare naked ladies i was an engineer for prince and many others but when i produced it was a royalty participant which means you get a flat fee and you get a percentage of the profits you have a stake in this business you've launched a mixer being an artist in his or her own right and performing undoubtedly the most difficult task mixing is the hardest they sometimes if they're a-list mixers will get a royalty point in addition as well to to their flat fee so mixers get the big money producers get the big money if the record is a hit that's how it always worked in the past these days with so many unsigned artists making records there's not money to pay them so today's producer is typically getting co-writing credit what i would just do as part of my Producer job, the arrangement suggestions, or the lyric suggestions, or the, the changes I would make to a record, I called it production. Today they call it co-writing. Interesting. It, it, it's, it's a way. It's a way for for young producers to get a little bit of money if the song takes off. Right. Well, the last I
1: had read, uh, as far as producers are concerned, only about two percent of producers are female. Um, that does that surprise you, or is that something that you already knew?
0: I know there aren't a lot of us. Ebony Smith wrote an article for Billboard magazine, um, something, this was maybe six months ago now, and I think the subtext of it was, you know, there are women producers out there. All you have to do is look. Ebony is one herself. Ebony is the chief engineer at Atlantic Records in New York City uh, and a friend of mine. Anyway, the the women are there. We... uh, we got a rough road today because um, it's so hard to find credits nowadays. In my day, the credits just appeared on the back of the record of the CD booklet, but now it's hard to know who produced what. And when you see that production credit, um, you're not exactly sure how much of that contribution came from uh, an artistic, well, uh, let me maybe rephrase that. How much of that contribution came from writing or from actually performing the work Mm -hmm. that I associate with production, which is extracting performances from musicians. Those women are out there. I would think that the number would be higher than 2%, but I don't know. It depends on where we get our data from.
1: Exactly. And and hopefully it is getting higher and we're seeing more along those lines as far as uh, gender equality. I know that uh, we work with soundgirls.org, which is a nonprofit organization that offers resources and mentorship and uh, summer camps for teen girls who want to learn more about audio engineering. We're raising money for a grant for them. According to statistics, about five percent of audio engineers are women. So we're doing what we can to help the next generation come in and uh, get some real working experience on that and some education.
0: This is great, we need to plow through that wall. We need to keep going forward. But over the course of my lifetime, I started in the business in 1978, so it's been 41 years now. I've seen some of the things that have presented the largest obstacles to women. I see here at Berkeley, because I teach in the Department of Music Production and Engineering, I see that our female students, of course, have the same distribution as our male students. There's a small number of the best of the best, mm-hmm. and then there's the mean, and then there are a few people who really, really aren't cut out for this business, and it has nothing to do with gender, whether you're male or female, but we see that women are, of course, as capable as men. So early on, early when we start our careers, it seems like when the starting gun goes off, we start out equally strong. But some of the barriers we face uh, will not be easily overcome, and I'm thinking of the biological one. Uh, In this business, it has been said you have to work for seven years before you can call yourself a beginner. I teach students on campus based on my own experience and the experience of my friends who've been successful We don't really get a purchase on our career until we're in our 30s. And by get a purchase on it, I mean be established so that you can kind of guarantee that every project you do is going to be of a high enough professional caliber. And you're known by enough people in the industry that they're hiring you. You have work. You've arrived in your mid-30s. You'll spend, from that point, the next 10 years reaching your artistic peak. So most myself and most of my friends, our careers professionally peaked in our mid-40s. That's not uncommon. It's very common. What happens when you're 35, 34 years old, and you finally got this, and your eggs are about to expire? (laughs) What do you do? And uh, this is what I have seen among some of my friends. The dilemma for women is that reproduction is biologically more expensive, far more expensive for us than it is for men. So we've got a much tougher decision to make than they do. We've all got the same financial pressure, but what do we do? So at this point, some women will hit the pause button on their careers in order to become a mom. Mm -hmm. And then they find when they pick up back up again a few years later, they've lost traction. Right. Uh, It is not um, coincidental that some of us, myself, uh, Leanne Unger, my colleague at Berkeley, Sylvia Massey, uh, many of us are uh, have, have no children.
1: And of course, you know, with musicians being out on the road, uh, the touring, the demands of touring, the demands of being away from home also are very discouraging, especially for women um, and having children. And this is actually a theme that has come up in a number of the uh, conversations that I've had, the chats that I've had with special guests, because it is certainly a huge part of how our musical careers are affected and and how our personal life many times takes a backseat to all of this. I also want to reiterate for listeners that this is not a man-haters club. This has nothing to do with that. Um, it just talk, We're just talking about how There are different pressures for women than there are for men. For our audience, we are with Susan Rogers, and she is a professor at the Berkeley College of Music and studies uh, psychoacoustics as well as music cognition. One of the first things that I'm going to ask, given that we're backstage chats with women in music, what are the differences and or similarities in working with male artists versus female artists, whether you're doing it as an audio engineer or a producer or a professor?
0: That's such a good question. I've done a couple of records where all of the participants were women. Uh, Wendy and Lisa with their band and uh, Toshi Reagan years after that. I more recently was in New Zealand last August participating in a week-long workshop myself and four other women producers songwriters who were working at Neil Fenn's studio with an invited selected group of women songwriters from New Zealand and So all in all, between the photographer and the organizer and everyone, we were about two dozen women at this big studio complex, all working together. And I noticed something beautifully different about working with these women. So remember I said there were five women producers, myself included, there were also five either studios or writing rooms. So they divided us up so that each day, each producer would have three or four women to work with and work on a song. And the thing about women is that None of us was interested in hogging the ball or taking credit. With men, you just kind of feel that they jockey for position and they uh, need to, maybe for their comfort or security or whatever, establish a hierarchy, a, a pyramid of who's the alpha male in the room and, and who gets the last word. But with women, as we're working on songs, it was more circular. Mm-hmm. I felt if it were a shape, it weren't a pyramid; it was a circle, and we would just take turns passing ideas around and trying things out. And there wasn't there was no one individual who tried to elbow her way ahead of the others. It just simply didn't work like that. We had this natural egalitarian approach to music making. Now that's just a case study of one. That's what I observed, but I think there might be some truth to that. Uh, the min- have been as I said before as generous of spirit and as open-minded and as trusting of women as as men possibly get but still uh, if you've got that x and that y chromosome and you've got that testosterone and you're working in the music business which is highly competitive competing is going to be in your nature women compete too no doubt about that but when we're working in a collaborative endeavor we don't seem to feel the pulsion to award ourselves titles or credits and things like that. So that, that's one little difference I've observed.
1: I've spoken with a life coach before who said that competition is a very male dominant trait versus collaboration is more of a female dominant trait. So I think that you're showing a perfect example of what she's talking about in in what your experience was in this one case.
0: The role of leadership Um, if your role is producer you know what your job is your job is uh, to keep things moving like a teacher in a classroom they're the ones who are doing the learning you're the one who's doing the teaching and you have to keep things moving and you have to make that call as to whether or not did we get it or didn't we get it and they also in their turn uh, the the artists and participants agree to trust you and the understanding is you might not be right and we'll never know will we we won't know today we won't know tomorrow we won't know until that record gets out there in the world it's this task agreement that to the best of my knowledge I think this will work and here's why and I'm speaking to you from the perspective of a, an experienced professional I've done this before but also from mainly from the perspective of a big music fan I really love records and I right. want to try to make the record that going to work for me and I'm assuming that there will be enough people who enjoy music the same way that I do that there'll be enough of us that we agree that yeah that's pretty good
1: We're going to take a quick break and continue our chat after this message. Our friends at Via 313 Pizza are proud to support Backstage Chats Foundation. Stop by any of Via 313's three restaurants in Austin or order online at via313.com. Together, we can amplify the voices and careers of women in music. And looking at it from the listener perspective versus the artist perspective, What about gender influences there? I mean, in your studies and what you've learned, what are cognitive reactions or emotions that may differ between men and women when they listen to music?
0: Hmm. Well, let's start off by saying the truth. There are far more similarities between men and women than there are differences, but there are some differences. Starting with the physiological. Women hear slightly differently than men do. Our heads are physically smaller. A woman's head is smaller than a man's head. And we have a greater processing power for high frequencies. Just, just. I'm I'm hesitating here because the data is a little bit murky, but something that's beyond dispute is that the physical size of our head shapes what we hear and what frequencies cancel and what frequencies don't. Uh, However, that said, an anecdotal bit of information gathered from the recording studio is that women seem to have a preference for low frequencies. Uh, for bass. Um, I heard it once said by a stereo salesman back in the late 70s, he said, yeah, all the stereo sales folks know this. If a woman walks in the door to buy a sound system, sell her one with the good bass. And if a man walks in the door to buy a sound system, tell him, uh, sell him the one with the, with the good high end. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I have been looking for evidence of that. We know that women have uh, our weight, unfortunately, is distributed lower to the ground than a man's. A man is up there in his chest and a woman's is down there in her hips. So the rhythms that we tend to enjoy the most tend to be different because of how our bodies naturally move. A few years back, I was at a club here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and one of our former students was playing, Nick Hakim, and he had uh, the great Kyle Miles on bass. And the band takes the stage. And they start to play. And as soon as they start to play, that groove was right in the zone that I like. It was the tempo. It was the feel. The weight was falling where I like it to fall. Now, when I observe a band on stage, because I have been a producer, I like standing right next to the side of the stage. And what I really like to do is observe the audience reaction because it's informative, right? So I was standing near the stage and, and that groove was so good. And I'm thinking, I know exactly what's going to happen now these young women are going to move up. And sure enough, they did. By the third song, it was five rows deep of women in the front because of that groove. And where the women go, the guys go. So then, you know, the guys, the guys follow (laughs) afterward. But we, uh, we women do tend to like uh, six, eight and three, four time. More than men do. Maybe that side to side rocking motion of rocking a baby or something, who knows? But women songwriters are more likely to write in three, four, six, eight than men do. And when women listen to music, I don't know, but I've based part of my career on it. I believe, just as when men listen to music, we are looking for subtle information, subtext, that will let us know what our relationship to the singer might be like. So years ago, I was working um, at Sunset Sound and packing up some tapes. Prince had already left and gone to Minneapolis and the young man was helping me and he's asking me questions about Prince and I answered the questions and then he said, well, I gotta tell you, I'm not really a Prince fan. He said, I like Bruce Springsteen. And I said, oh he, yeah, he's good. And I said, but why? And he said, well, he says, I just get the feeling that Bruce would have a beer with me and talk to me and that Prince would steal my girlfriend. I've never forgotten that. Prince wouldn't do that. He was, he was very, uh, he had a high moral compass. He wouldn't do things like that. But people, listeners, assume things about the artists who are singing to them. So when you've got a woman producer in the studio, she can alert that male songwriter when something he has said might have crossed a line or might have turned women off. For example, when we're fighting with someone, someone close to us, the temptation is to be clever and to give a zinger to zap them but those zingers cleverness and our wit but they're also evidence that we lash out because they're hurtful so a male artist needs to balance his willingness to lash out for the sake of cleverness and the price he might pay for that in terms of likability a woman can be the one in the room who raises her hand and says you know this lyric That's going to turn off a lot of women. It might attract you some guy fans, but you might lose some of your female fans. It makes such imminent sense that men and women should be in the studio making records together. Because we do have those different perspectives and those different experiences and those different bodies that do respond to sound and to music and to lyrics slightly differently.
1: And it's interesting that you say that because I feel it in my own experiences, especially when listening to the difference between a recorded song and then hearing it live. Uh, So for instance, when Sheryl Crow's uh, Tuesday Night Music Club album came out, I really wasn't all that into it i was much more of a hard rock kind of girl and i liked like you were just mentioning although i didn't know it at the time that that bass beat and that heavy drum and that just really appealed to me and then i saw her play at the 930 club in washington dc and i was astounded at how much i loved her music all of a sudden Mm -hmm. And the mix there had very heavy bass and it sounded more raw and the and the drum was heavier and it sounded more like a rock and roll experience for me than a pop rock, you know, like a pop top 40 type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the first times I really recognized how... The decisions in a studio versus the decisions in live music can really affect how people respond to an artist and that's why i'm a really big fan about don't diss the music until you've seen it live because it can totally change your perspective
0: that's very very true it's a little bit similar to dining alone if you eat a meal with other people less of your attention is going to be on the food because so much of your attention is absorbed in the atmosphere and in your dining companions. It becomes a, a, an experience that includes more than just what you're consuming. Uh, and that's different from how you might regard a meal if you were to eat it all by yourself. And let's just go ahead and assume that you enjoy eating by yourself. You need a minute apiece. peace. <laughs> so I'm not talking about loneliness or anything like that. I'm talking about the cognitive resources you have to devote to just that. Signal. When we listen to music, uh, it's a, if we're listening actively, it's a private experience. It's you and the singer. And it has been said that when we listen to music, we don the clothing of the person who's singing to us. It launches our fantasies. And those fantasies can be of a real world that actually exists, or those fantasies can be of an imaginary world. I owe my career to the fact that I have enjoyed and sought out. Music as a vehicle for my fantasies. Usually those fantasies were realistic. I mean uh, involving real people and real things But it can also just be flights of fancy that don't involve real things at all Now that's less likely to happen in a live setting Because you're with your friends, right? You're less likely to fantasize and you're much more likely to focus on the object at hand which is these songs and these performers and how they make you feel when they communicate to you directly. So it's a a different experience.
1: Which leads kind of to my next question. You're talking about fantasies and the different cognitive things that you've learned along the way on how we react. Is there something that was really surprising that you've learned in your cognitive research about how people
0: respond to music? Oh, there's so much good stuff. The main takeaway lesson... And the one that is a running theme in all of my classes on campus is that musicians and non-musicians hear differently. Musical training in childhood, musical training that starts in childhood, I should say, before the age of about 11 and 12, before 14, definitely, scientists differ on this. Musical training in childhood, if it lasts for at least five years Develops the auditory path such that musicians are better able than non musicians to hear the subtle differences in chords. Uh, Musicians have the capacity to listen analytically. For one thing, they've got labels for what certain chords are, but two, they're regarding music according to the formal rules, the structure of how music goes, its grammar and its syntax. And so when they make that judgment about whether something is working or not, it's informed by the rules of music usage because I did not have that in childhood. I listened like a non-musician. They are auditory athletes. I'm an auditory uh, person sitting in the stands with the foam thing that says, we're number one, <laughs> They're <laughs> playing the game. I'm watching the game. So as a non-musician, most listeners are, I'm listening for the big picture. Does this work? Are your gestures true? you telling me the truth, singer, when you sing? If you're really putting out that much effort, how come you're not out of breath? I should hear you by the end of this rock song. How come you're not? the The drummer's arm should be tired at the end of that blast beat. How come it isn't? So I'm listening for the truth, big picture stuff. This happened on campus just the other day, and I loved it in the classroom. Student gets up there, plays his rock song. It's a work in progress. Sounded great. One young man in the back says to the student, the student's name was Graham and the man in the back is Jared. And Jared says, it sounded great, but that one chord with that, F sharp is, uh, it's too dissonant. And I think you should de-emphasize that. It's just too dissonant. And then the kid, Alex, sitting in front of him says, no, 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 it wasn't the F sharp, it's a G, but it's actually not the G that is dissonant, I think it's the B underneath it, and they're talking about why this is wrong. And then it was my turn, and I just looked at the student and said, yeah, it was rude. A big difference in musicians and non-musicians is how we hear and what we're listening for. I'm listening for, how does this make me feel? Musicians tend to listen for, does this work or not? No, that's a very broad statement. There's overlap between us. They can learn, musicians can learn to listen synthetically the way I do. It's too late for me to ever learn to hear music the way they do.
1: Because it would be kind of nice to know that you could jump on that bandwagon if you wanted
0: to. Our development as music perceivers is complete by the age of 11 unless we're taking music lessons. So the auditory system does a lot of organizing in the first 11 years of our lives. And then by age 11, it needs to stop because it has to get ready for puberty. So 11 year old children, non-musicians perform identically to adult non-musicians in music perception tasks. If a kid keeps taking music lessons, they continue to develop that auditory path and they continue to, um, they branch off from the rest of us folks and they become, they have what scientists call the musician's brain. Big difference and and record makers should should know that. They should know that there are two kinds of listeners for our work and they're judging according to two sets of criteria.
1: Uh, again, going back to your research, You also talk about, you talk a lot about children and their development, their auditory development. And you also talk a lot about hearing impairment and diseases and things that happen to your ears from extended use of or listening to
0: loud music or loud noises.
1: I thought I'd take this opportunity to have you talk to our audience a little bit about that perspective.
0: Uh, Right here in Massachusetts at the uh, Mass Eye and Ear Institute is some of the world's greatest cutting-edge research on how the auditory system ages and what part of it actually gets degraded when we lose our hearing. So the great Charles uh, Lieberman and his partner Sharon Kujawa and their research over there have shown that we're gonna lose a bit of our wiring as we age. So on each side of our our head we've got an auditory nerve bundle of roughly 30,000 auditory nerves. Over time those wires are gonna, some of those cells are gonna die. So we're gonna lose a little bit of wiring. When you lose wiring, it means that the picture, the auditory picture that your cochlea's are capturing is a lower resolution. You don't have as many pixels. That's okay, you still got enough, you can still hear, you're doing pretty good. We will accelerate the death of auditory nerves if we overexpose ourselves to aversive and excessive sound pressure levels. I say aversive and excessive because, and this is the cool part, it turns out not all sound pressure levels are created equal. Mm. If you are bombarded with a high sound pressure level, while you're having a really great time let's say now i say this with some qualification but 105 db spl concert where you're mixing front of house and you've got some control over it is going to be less damaging than 105 db spl for the same time period an hour or two on a construction site not the one making the noise where someone else is making the noise in other words When we are moderately stimulated, and this is also shown, when we are rewarded for certain kinds of stimulation, Mm -hmm. it feels good. And that releases uh, neurotransmitters into our endocrine system, which offers some kind of protective effect against damage. Not fully, not 100%, and I hesitate a little bit because the pathway, the mechanism of this has not yet been explored, but we know it's true. There are a lot of folks who work in pro audio who are my age and their hearing is as good, if not better, than other folks who worked in different fields. So whether or not you're enjoying yourself and whether it's aversive or repetitive, it feels good, is a factor. That said, I wanted to start with some good news. All young people need to be protecting their hearing. Overstimulation causes, you might call it ear burn. Just like overstimulating your skin causes sunburn. And that will cause melanoma on your skin. It will cause skin cancer if you keep doing it over and over and over again. So we wear sunscreen. Um, likewise, we should be protecting our inner hair cells and outer hair cells. We should be protecting the cochlea so that they don't get overstimulated, those poor little things. They're tiny. And unlike other cells in the body, they don't uh, replicate. So right. if you kill off those hair cells, they're gone forever. You don't want that. No. Well, then you can't enjoy the music anymore. Exactly. And what happens is you uh, are going to kill off the Parts of the circuit that are responsible for the high frequencies. The high frequencies, what is found in um, consonants as opposed to vowels, allow us to distinguish among bat, cat, sat, hat. That's what happens to grandma and grandpa when they get older and they're saying, stop mumbling. You don't need to shout. They can hear you. They can hear that you're speaking. They just can't discriminate among those individual consonants. So it's. it sounds like you're mumbling. It sounds like you're, you're, you're underwater.
1: Remember to protect your ears, especially in loud environments. Even if it's not at a concert, it could be at, like you said, a construction site or somewhere else where there's a lot going on. So Susan, I would love to wrap up our conversation today with a couple of audience questions. Would okay. you do that? Sure, love it. The first one that I have is from Lisa. She's in Emeryville, California. And she says, I teach by sharing examples of the mistakes I have made as the stories paint a clear picture. But I'm interested in how to teach creativity. Do you have any tips for Lisa?
0: Well, I've done a little bit of research into the neurobiology of creativity, most particularly involving folks who are highly creative. And Uh, Certainly Prince was one of them, and uh, I've, I've known a few others, people who are highly, highly creative. High creativity is linked to a couple of brain circuits and their degree of activation. I won't go into the details of that, but suffice it to say that folks who are highly creative are born not made because it involves how these particular circuits, the right precuneus and the right parietal temporal junction, work. Just like athletes, some have different hearts, different lungs, different muscles, right? So that said, you can teach people to be more creative and i'm not an expert in this field but i know a little bit uh, to know that creativity comes with having a mental library that is larger so that there are more mental books on your shelf and more examples to go back to in the studio anyway I, i was successful because in part because of all the records i had listened to growing up i had so many examples to choose from creative person when stuck When hitting that dead end, we'll be able to scan her mental library and go, here's how someone else solved that problem. My friend Tim Bruckner is a sculptor. That's what he does for a living. And uh, he says a life in the arts is a life in problem solving. And uh, I had the privilege to work with the great Phil Ramone once. And I asked Phil, I was about 35, and he was 57. And I said, Phil, at what age did this start to get easy for you? And he just looked at me and he said, not yet. I'm 57 and it's not yet easy. In other words, what he was saying is I'm still encountering problems that I've never seen before and I'm still having to be creative. However, you can speed that up by having uh, consumed a lot of works of creativity. Personally, I like going to the art museums whenever I get a chance and seeing art house films and listening to uh, music that is beyond my sphere a little bit so that I can understand the mind that created that kind of work. That will help, that will help enhancing creativity.
1: Thank you very much. And Lisa, there you have it. Here's our next question. This comes from Deborah, who lives in Toronto, Canada. And this is a a little bit of a long intro here, but here we go. She says she wants to know how you reacted to social media backlash against David Byrne's American Utopia album, on which he had dozens of collaborators, but none of them were women. Given that Byrne has a long and rich history of working with women, do you feel the criticism was warranted? And how do we go about correcting imbalance in the future?
0: Oh, I didn't know. I have the album, and as we were talking about earlier, I didn't look at the credits. I didn't realize that he was working just with women. I do think we need to consider motive and intention. Um, I would wager that it was not David Byrne's intention to work exclusively with men. Uh, Having known the man and having worked with him, I'm guessing that he chose the other artists, the other artistic minds he wanted to collaborate with, And it just so happened that they were all male. The odds of that are good because it's a profoundly male-dominated profession. So I would wager that there's no way that David Byrne made a conscious decision to not work with women. That said, I recognize what you mean by your question. What you mean is uh, when? When are we going to get those numbers up? This weekend was Berkeley's commencement. Berkeley, the school where I teach. And the provost is giving us the numbers. And he said with a great deal of pride, this year's graduating class includes 31% women. And I just wanted to go, (laughs) boom! I didn't. Uh, People applauded that. Why are we applauding that? We should be applauding 50% women, not 31%. Berkeley historically. Women have been about one-third, so a ratio of about twice as many men as there are women. It's society's problem. It's compounded by the fact that men are rewarded in society for having a monomaniacal, myopic focus on their work. Women are considered to be a somewhat suspect wife and mother if a woman is devoting herself exclusively to her work. That's not a good partner. This is the message that society gives us. She would be a bad mom. She would be a bad wife because she's working all the time. What's wrong with her? How could she be so selfish? Whereas a man who's working all the time, the impression is, what a good husband, what a good father Larry is providing for us. Society needs to do some work by giving us more examples of women we love who are working exclusively to satisfy their working goals and that those women are desirable and those women would be good mothers we we are a, a long way from that um so I'm, I'm afraid i'm not going to hold david burns feet to the fire for not deliberately going out and choosing a woman I'm, there are men who do that there are men who only want to work with with men uh, and and I'd, I'd single them out before I'd single out David Byrne. Years ago in the 1980s, a and Studios in Hollywood had a policy of no women assistant engineers. And they would say quite proudly, women assistants never had them, never will. Wow. They were, yeah, they were then the subject of a class action lawsuit. About, <laughs> you know, because uh, It was wrong. But they were under the impression in the 80s that what clients wanted to see is all men assisting okay. them. It is somewhat pervasive in this industry. We must praise the folks who do work with women, uh, and that includes David Byrne, and that includes certainly all the clients I've worked with. They deserve our respect for being brave enough and smart enough to bring a woman into the room. Women have been saying for some time now, we want to get a different way. (laughs) It's up to all of us, men and women, to work toward getting us to be a different way. I'm going to leave you with the... Something really sweet that just brought tears to my eyes. It was so wonderful. So this was about a year ago. And the great Sylvia Massey, recording engineer, record producer, was coming to Berkeley. And I was in the control room. I had just finished, just finished a class, and three of the young men were there talking and they were so excited because Sylvia was coming. And the three guys were talking among themselves and they were just so excited. Sylvia's coming and they're gonna play this for her, and they're gonna get to assist on her session. And the three of them stopped and they looked at me with a very excited look on their faces and the one said Sylvia Massey she's the greatest engineer in the world (laughs) never did I think that in my lifetime I would hear three young men and these guys are they were they're some of our top students give it up for a woman engineer and say with all that excitement she's the greatest engineer in the world that was totally admissible them. That was something they would do without the least bit of embarrassment or the least bit of hesitation or qualification. Sylvia is the greatest. Sylvia lit up our kids when she came, as did Trina Shoemaker, as does Wendy Wang, as does Ebony Smith. We have demonstrated on our campus over and over again how competent women are and how original and creative we are in the recording studio. That's out there. The young generation is getting a a taste of it. Uh, We need to keep going in this direction.
1: We absolutely do. And that obviously with Backstage Chats with Women in Music, part of our goal is by amplifying these stories that we help boost their careers and and most importantly confidence and knowing that there are other women who have been through this that we're all in this to you know to help each other out so that we can all be successful whether you're a musician or not no matter what walk of life you're in I personally think that as female artists and music makers in general have so much to give to us with the gift of not just the music but their experiences and how they relay it so thank you very very much susan rogers for being on the show today i greatly appreciate it and i know our listeners do and we can't wait to hear more from you i hope we get an opportunity to talk to you again in the future
0: That would be really nice i must say i don't have any presence on social media at all but i am writing a book i've got a co-author and uh, we expect the book will be out next year it's a book on listening Listening to music in particular, listening as a record producer, listening as a, a brain scientist, and listening as a music fan. So some of the things I talked about here today, I'm going to be expanding on in the book. I think it'll be kind of fun. So maybe I'll check back in with you as the book gets close to publication.
1: And we would definitely love to catch up with you about that and learn more about your book. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have been with Susan Rogers, and I just want to remind everybody that the reason why we have this. Pod- podcast is because these ladies remind us to be dreamers to be rule breakers and to unleash our inner rock stars thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time it's a wrap hit the subscribe button and never miss an episode of backstage chats with women in music this podcast is a production of the backstage chats foundation a non-profit that is on a mission to eliminate gender disparity in the music industry by amplifying the voices and careers of women in music. You can make a difference by donating to the cause. Visit backstagechats.com and click the donate button today.